doppelgangers often in art and literature stand in for the way societies can kind of flip into evil twin versions of themselves. You know, this is what happens when fascism rises is like a previously open society suddenly tips into something much uglier. And that that can happen. We're not we're not we're not immune to it. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Naomi Klein realized that she had an alter ego, or doppelganger, in 2011 when she overheard people talking about her during the Occupy Wall Street protests. The international best-selling author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything, Klein realized that she was being confused with Naomi Wolf, author of the 1991 feminist bestseller The Beauty Myth. At the time, both authors wrote about the danger of corporate influence and rising authoritarianism. But in recent years, Wolf has become an anti-vax conspiracy theorist and a leading purveyor of COVID-19 misinformation. Klein was horrified and intrigued about why the other Naomi, as she calls her, had disappeared down a conspiratorial rabbit hole. In her new book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, Naomi Klein dives deep into the alternate reality of conspiracy theorists and the far right to understand why societies have been sharply divided and democracy pushed to the brink. New York Magazine's Vulture has named Doppelganger the number one book of the year, and the book has been included on lists of the year's best books by the New York Times, Time, Slate, and The Guardian. Naomi Klein is Professor of Climate Justice and Co-Director of the Center for Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia and is Honorary Professor of Media and Climate at Rutgers. She is a columnist for The Guardian. Naomi Klein, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me again, David. Let's begin at the beginning here and go back to how and when did you come to be aware that you had a doppelganger, an alter ego? in the person of author Naomi Wolf. And when did it dawn on you that other Naomi, as you call her, that her journey from liberal feminist critic to full-blown anti-vax conspiracy theorist might actually be a parable for the current state of our politics? Sure. Um, well, I, I remember the moment when I first heard somebody actively confuse me with her, which was, um, I, I mean, I think I, I'd seen a few things online. Like sometimes I would, I would, people would be mad at me about something. It was very confusing to me. Like, I, and and then I would sort of have to reverse engineer it um, to figure out that. Naomi Wolf had written something that had upset people and they were yelling at me. And so I'd have to go back and see what she had said and then explain to people that, no, I had not written that thing about Julian Assange or, you know, Edwardson or something like that. But um, in 2011, I was at Occupy Wall Street and there was a, a march that day through, through the financial district. And um, I was in a, a public restroom 
And um, I overheard two people talking about me. I was in a stall and I heard two people uh, trashing me, actually talking about an article that I had written that they really disagreed with. And I just sort of froze and was like, and they were like, did you hear what Naomi Klein wrote? She doesn't understand anything about our movement. And so I just, I just sort of had all my mean girl flashbacks come back to me. And then I realized gradually that they were talking about something that Naomi Wolf had written, not me. So I came out of the washroom and I, and I said, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. And um, the reason why I shared that story in the book is also just because I came to see social media as um, the equivalent of reading the graffiti about yourself on the bathroom wall. Um, so I uh, thought it was fitting that the first time I heard um, that I was being confused with her. I was actually in a public restroom over here. Basically don't eavesdrop on other people's conversations. No good could come of that, whether or not it's on social media or in real life. Um, but yeah, so it's been going on for a while. At that moment, Occupy Wall Street, yeah. 2011, you know, the kind of thing, topics you were addressing, not necessarily what you were saying about them, was was sort of dovetailing with things that Naomi Wolf was writing about. She was writing about authoritarianism and the rising threat of it in, in America. Mm -hmm. But then she takes a sharp right turn. What happened to Naomi Wolf? Yeah, so I think it was pretty sharp. Um, but there were some hints earlier on that this that there might be um, it in like the, the, the she sort of flirted with the right a little bit before, but it really happens during COVID. Um, but to understand, I think this shift, you have to understand something else that happened right before COVID in 2019, which is she uh, published a book called Outrages, um, and it was. Um, it was it was discovered live on the air on BBC that this book outrages that that was about um, repression of um, gay sex and love uh, in the Victorian era actually had some huge errors in it in the research and this was exposed live on the air uh, on the BBC and and she was dropped by her publisher and the book was pulped and she became kind of like a, a Twitter laughing stock now I should know because. A lot of those people were laughing at me thinking it was her. So I saw a lot of this. It was very ugly, very cruel. But it's just simply to say that I I think part of her turn to the right probably had a little something to do with the fact that she was really sort of ejected from the left because of a series of errors. So during COVID, she found a new audience. And it was with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson. And it was, it was when she started making claims about... <clears throat> very conspiratorial claims, first about the vaccine, uh, then, well, first about the virus, then about the vaccine, and then about the vaccine verification apps. There was a whole sort of web of, of conspiracies. She tried on a few. And the one that really helped her hard turn to the right was when she started claiming that the vaccine verification apps were part of some kind of a plot to bring a Chinese style social credit system to the West, and that we were all being put under extreme surveillance by these verification apps that we had downloaded onto our phones. And she talked about how if she had known that Biden was going to do any of these things, she wouldn't have voted for him. And then Tucker Carlson started putting her on Fox and Steve Bannon started putting her on his show almost daily. And so that was really the hard right turn was when a few, you know, figures like Bannon and, and Carlson saw her 
as somebody who could be useful to them. And she suddenly had not just a new audience, but a huge new audience, because these these are very successful uh, media entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, I think we, we, we are all working in an attention economy that, that rewards wherever the views and the clicks and the, you know, and, and the likes are, and it, it started to be there for her. So you are that rare person on the left who has listened to hundreds of hours of Steve Bannon and the war room, his podcast. Um, and you talk about how Bannon has successfully channeled white working class anger. What have you learned from listening to Steve Bannon? He is certainly an evil genius, or perhaps if you like him, just a genius, but um, he's good at what he does. So tell us what he does. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't know that I would call him a genius, but I would definitely call him a very good strategist. Um, and I think what he does is what his move is as a strategist is really to study his opponents and in particular what his opponents are doing wrong, what issues they are sort of um abandoning, what people they are insulting. And then he brings them over to his camp or he tries to. And, you know, where, where I think we saw this move to quite devastating effect was in 2016 over the issue of free trade, which is an issue that I, you know, I've long been engaged in these, in these fights. You know, my first book, uh, No Logo was about corporate globalization and it got into um, the rise of uh, sweatshop labor and outsourcing on the backs of free trade deals like NAFTA and APEC, the World Trade Organization. And, you know, when I came up in the altered globalization movement, these were left-wing issues for the most part. I mean, they were issues that trade unions were really rallying around, um, small farmers, um, and they were part of a sort of a constellation of left issues that were also, that were not xenophobic, uh, that were anti-racist. Um, I'm not saying the movement was perfect, but it was a progressive internationalist movement. And what happened in 2016 is that a lot of Democrats who had voted, uh, who had voted for, you know, Obama twice, um, you know, maybe got back to voted voting for Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, all promising to reopen NAFTA, renegotiate these deals, get a better deal for working Americans, were pretty much fed up, um, and they weren't. They were, didn't like the way Hillary Clinton was talking down to them. And Trump started saying, well, I'm going to renegotiate these deals. And I think that that was really Bannon's work, was this kind of mix and match of some issues from the left, like protecting Social Security, protecting Medicare, renegotiating trade deals, and mixing them in with anti-immigrant xenophobia, anti-Black racism, um, this sort of hyper-masculinist uh, you know, neo-fascist project. And it's it's a powerful cocktail. It's and, and it's smart as a strategist to take potent issues that your opponents have carelessly left unattended, um, which is what happened with free trade. So when I listened to Bannon, you know, having already actually um studied this move in the context of the 2016 election, I was seeing him doing it again with big pharma, with big tech. Um <clears throat> with, you know, surveillance, people's surveillance concerns, um, and also some of the unfair um, 
uh, applications of the COVID measures, right? That that affected small businesses um, much more severely than larger players who got big big bailouts and so on. Um, so yeah, that's why that's why I followed my doppelganger uh, down the rabbit hole into Steve Bannon world, and you know the book becomes much less about her than about the world she has now joined. You know, the thing about having a doppelganger is like having somebody who looks like you enough that the world thinks is you, is that it makes all of this feel closer, right? Like I think a lot of people, oh, I'd never like, I'd never, I'd never believe those things. I'd never go over to the other side, but it starts to feel like very proximate, you know, and doppelgangers often in art and literature stand in for the way societies can kind of flip into evil twin versions of themselves. You know, this is what happens when fascism rises is like a previously open society suddenly tips into something much uglier. And that, that can happen. We're not, we're not, we're not immune to it. You, you know, you talk about people going down the rabbit hole of reality warping. What explains why this is happening now? Why conspiracy theorists and theories are gaining such traction right now? Well, you know, I say in the book that 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 right wing conspiracy culture um, uh, often gets the facts wrong, but the feelings right. So they're often tapping into a feeling of you know that the game is rigged. That 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 these elites are getting away with with murder. Getting you know they're just they're just um, uh, they, they there's a whole different set of rules that applies to them, right? And all that's true. All of that is true. It is a rigged game, um, and a different set of rules does in general apply to them. Um, you know what I say in the book? Like that game is called capitalism. Like it's not, it's not, it's not Q, that that game is not called Q. Uh, um, and and there isn't going to be like some some cabal that you can expose um, and arrest, and then everything gets back to sort of healthy and 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 and, and fair capitalism. But that is the sort of appeal that I think conspiracy has always had on the right. You know, I think you know in the, in the 1930s, the fascists were holding out the promise that they could return uh, to healthy capitalism if they just got rid of the Jews. Um, and this is why uh, anti-Semitism is often referred to as the socialism of fools. So, I think that these ideas always spread when people are hurting, when people have a sense that things are rigged, that, that, that the game is rigged, um, that there are different sets of rules, they're looking for someone to blame, the anger is gonna go somewhere. So where is it gonna go? And the left says, you know, it, 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 we have to change the system. You know, it really is rigged. Let's have another set of rules. Let's redistribute wealth. Um, let's really get at the, at the root drivers. But the right says, well, we're just going to go after this, these 10 people and the immigrants, and you're going to get to feel a sort of sense of superiority over people even more vulnerable than you. Um, so it's, you know, I think the playbook always changes slightly, you know, but the structure of what is being offered is, is really chillingly familiar. And I think, you know, so during COVID, all of this started happening in hyperdrive because of a combination of 
confronting a, a, a virus that we didn't understand and having very damaging effects on people. Um, you know, and here I'm just talking about the, the counter COVID measures, not the COVID itself, but, you know, having to be isolated, um, losing income, be, uh, you know, we are social beings. We don't do all that well alone. And then going online and trying to find some simulation of the friends and community that we miss, trying to find some way of making sense of what was going on. And, you know, what we're calling the rabbit hole is the attention economy. And it is a, it's, it, it's an information ecosystem that rewards whoever has the wildest theory um, and can claim to have sorted it out. And so, you know, a certain kind of informational attention entrepreneur really thrive during COVID because they were really willing to say anything like drink bleach, you know, take this pill, take that pill. Um, it's all, it's, it's, it's Bill Gates is trying to track you, you know, with the vaccines or whatever it is. If, if you're unbound by having to tell the truth, you, you, you can say anything and you're going to get a lot of clicks for it. So the subtitle of Doppelganger is a trip into the mirror world. Explain what you mean by the mirror world. Mm. What are the dimensions of that world? And what gives you entry to it? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I start using the term mirror world to, to understand what Bannon is building. Um, you know, what, what, what this, what this world is that is kind of like a doppelganger of the left that I, that I would recognize, you know, because it has a critique of big tech. It has a critique of big pharma. It has a critique of corporate ownership of the media. You know, there's a point in the book where I talk about Bannon doing this montage of, of intros and outros to cable news shows on CNN and MSNBC. And they say like, brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna. And I say, you know, it, it could be like a montage on democracy now. You know, he, he sounds a little like me. He sounds a little like Amy Goodman. He sounds a little like Noam Chomsky, right? But then well, of course- And, and in preparation for this, I should say, I was reading- <laughs> An, uh, an essay by you from 2020, where you talk about uh, the profiteering that Phar Pharma was going to be doing around this. Um, and yes, it it merges seamlessly right. with that Naomi Wolf style of uh, her critique. Yeah. And so what, you know, the mirror world is kind of the parallel world that is being created, the information sphere. Bannon is very explicit about this. Like, you know, the, he's, he's, he's an entrepreneur. So he's got a piece of different, you know, publishing houses, social media, like, so you get kicked off Twitter, you go on Getter, you get kicked off YouTube, you go on Rumble, like, you know, and he, but he'll also like sell some like ridiculous currency and say that, you know, we need to have our own currency because they're tanking the economy. Um, so there's a, there's a mirror version of everything in our world. Um, and, and a lot of it is grifting, uh, I should say, but when it's, I talk about this kind of- It's worth saying, by the way, what Steve Bannon's currency is. It is- Are a, we allowed to say that? Uh, yeah. Well, we'll say the initials uh, FJB and JB stands for Joe Biden. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. Mm -hmm. And it is a mm -hmm. cryptocurrency that has lost almost all of its value. Uh, yes. Well, it is Steve Bannon after all. So there's always a combination of a grift, you know, and a real serious political project that we can't discount because after all, he got Trump into the White House once and uh, he could well do it again, especially because Joe Biden's making it awfully easy for him. Um, so, so I, you know, you mentioned me writing in 2020 about how how pharmaceutical companies are going to make a profit off of this. And this is something that a lot of us on the left were talking about in those, you know, early COVID 
uh, months. I mean, it was entirely predictable. And we were making the case before they even uh, launched the vaccines that the vaccines shouldn't be patented, that they were too important. We're in a global pandemic. Why should anybody be allowed to profiteer off of this, whether it's the tech companies or the drug companies? This was being developed with public money. The vaccines were being purchased by our governments. It could have been a fee for service. It didn't have to be patented. And yet it was, right? And so people in wealthy in wealthy countries like ours were able to get their third and fourth shots before many people in the global South were able to get their first ones. Um, but, but once the right took up the anti-vax call and it got all confused and, and warped and turned into this conspiracy culture around Bill Gates wanting to track us and the vaccine apps listening in on to our conversations, uh, a lot of that critique sort of fell away. And much of what we heard from the left and liberals was just like, roll up your sleeve and get your shot. And and sort of um, a kind of an extreme adherence to the government's COVID um, uh, mandates. And you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have been encouraging people to be vaccinated, but we should have been also been more ambitious than that. We should have been calling for, um, you know, more New Deal style programs that would have hired, uh, you know, millions of young people to work in the schools and in the hospitals and uh, rebooted civil civilian conservation corps and, um, you know, really investing in good indoor air and outdoor education. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to fight a virus beyond just wearing a mask and getting a vaccine. And, but those do require big invest investments in infrastructure, you know, uh, uh, you know, smaller classrooms, uh, better, better health care, maybe universal public health care, you know, things like that. And if you think about it, that isn't really what the left was focused on uh, during COVID. So I think that all the anger was really available to the Bannons of the world to sort of to 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 draw over into the mirror world. So, you know, when I talk about the mirror world, I'm really talking about a dialectic between the right and the left, where we become very reactive to one another. Um, and if an issue is touched by them, it becomes almost untouchable by us. Um, so I want to try to get away from that. I think we need a left that is guided by very clear values and principles um, and not a left that's just reacting to whatever the right is doing. One of the weirder corners of the mirror world that you write about is talking about how a yoga instructor becomes an anti-vax warrior. And this is the role of wellness influencers um, in this mirror world. What place do they occupy and, and why did they become the champions of all these, a lot of really crazy conspiracy theories? Yeah. So, I mean, the thread running through the book is, is the figure of the double, you know, the way in which we can have multiple selves, right? This, this, this self we might be conscious of that we consider our real self, but then there's also the self we perform online our digital avatars or digital doubles. But there's also a way in which, you know, I think the more competitive, precarious our, our, our economy becomes, the more we place on the self, the more we expect um, our, like that we can, that we can um, survive these roiling capitalist seas by 
fortune, almost having like a, a self that is our lifeboat. So, so where do the yoga instructors come in? Well, they are the, some of these figures and it's not, not all hashtag, not all yoga instructors. There's definitely some great ones out there, you know, <laughs> um, but these are the sort of online, like the people I write about are really people who are very good at monetizing wellness. Um, they are doing that already and they hold up their own perfected forms and health as a model for others on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and, you know, th because they were already in the sort of discourse of like the being optimally well and pure and clean eating, um, it was so sort of an easy segue into this idea that the vaccine was this pollutant. It was, um, it was unnatural. It was going into their perfected bodies, which they didn't need anyway, because they were doing all of the good things to make themselves strong. And if only other people did as much yoga and juicing as them, then they wouldn't need the vaccines either. And so what was really eerie was to watch, you know, a culture that I always considered pretty benign, you know, I, I like yoga, I'll be honest with you, I've taken more than my share of yoga classes. Um, and, and, and watching it kind of get mean or parts of it get get fascistic during COVID, you know, and I, in the book, I tell the story of, of, of knocking on doors during a Canadian election when my husband was running for the NDP and him uh, meeting a woman who I could have taken an Ashtanga class from who only wanted to talk about vaccines and about how she didn't need them because she had such a strong immune system. And my husband, Avi, said, well, that's great for you, but not everybody has a strong immune system. Um, you know, we are like, like that, that's what, what epidemiology tells us. Like we, 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 we do things sometimes to protect each other. And she said, I think those people should die. Um, and so when I say that's, you know, that's fascistic, that's, that's fascist thought. That's, that's the, that, that is, that is, um, you know, a hierarchy of human life of, um, that, that believes that some lives are unworthy of life. And the truth is that the new age and fascistic projects have a long history. And, you know, and these, these were threads that were very, very present, you know, in the 1930s. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think after the second world war, uh, wellness and, and, you know, the far right went their separate ways, but I, I am arguing in the book that they have come back together in, in, in some cases and COVID, COVID accelerated that. Well, and you hear echoes of this purity narrative as Donald Trump now speaks about poisoning of the blood, which is yes. of course, language lifted right out of Hitler's speeches. So, um, you know, the past becomes present very quickly in this wellness thread sort of weaves right into that kind of thinking. And, you know, Trump, Trump has always talked about his good genes. Um, you know, he's got a kind of a, a genetics obsession. Um, it's becoming more overt. Um, but let's not forget all of his advice about drinking bleach and various cockamamie wellness schemes. I mean, he's always been a little bit adjacent to it. I'm not saying he's the picture of wellness. I think he eats too much Kentucky Fried Chicken for that. But, you know, it's not that surprising. Naomi, you were a surrogate for Bernie Sanders in his most recent run for president in 2020. Uh, I don't know, were you also in 2016 or? No, was... but I, I mean, I supported him in 2016, but I, I was much more involved this time around. Last so, time around. you know, I often think people who are on the campaign trail are getting a an immersion course in um, 
what is going on in the countries that most people don't get. You're zooming around, you're talking to people, you're, what did you see uh, that Bernie did right? And what do you think um, resulted in him just not getting the traction that he hoped to get in his last run? I mean, I think he did a lot right. Um, and you're right that that um, those experiences are really precious, you know, being in 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 rooms full of people in places you might not otherwise go. and um, and it's emo it's very emotional. I, I I think maybe at any point, but it it also felt like I, I had a real feeling when I was on the on the road with Bernie this time, just that people were really at a breaking point. You know, um, the rallies were uh, ragged, you know, um, uh, they were, they, people, people were, it, al it almost felt like they were expending their last bit of hope in this idea that there could be something that could really address the underlying crises of their lives, you know, medical debt and student debt. And um so they were, you know, it was wonderful, but uh, but it was a it was it was worrying. It was worrying to me how 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 much pain there was out there, and how much hope was being invested in this one person. And it was always a long shot, you know. Um, I mean, I remember being in Nevada, um, in in Las Vegas, and the amount of hope that you know, fam like families of immigrants would be able to come out of the shadows, you know, and the amount of pain that, that they were being, that, that, that they were carrying. Um, so what did, what did he do right? I mean, I think, I think the campaign in lots of ways was brilliant. I think the frame, not me, us, continues to be a transcendent frame that is bigger than Bernie, you know, the because it breaks through the hyper individualism of capitalism and it says no you you are not all on your own and you will never get safety just by optimizing yourself and 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 you know working this rigged system just by yourself that we can we can win better rules and fairer rules and but we can only do that if we join our power together right and that that's what ended up that's the slogan, not me, us. I think the first time I heard it, I thought it was just Bernie saying, it's not about me, it's about us. But when you're on the campaign trail, you realize that it that it's really about, you know, the person carrying all of this debt saying, no, this isn't just my failure, my crisis. This is all of us. We are in this and 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 all of us can fix it. So I think he did that tremendously well. But the flip side of that ability to connect people in common was I think Bernie never, never navigated difference all that well, right? And and I think I think that that the, that the trick of the political trick of our moment, the the move, um, has to be a way of of creating that common us, that common that common project that doesn't erase difference, that still can hold particularities that that black people's experience in the states is not the same as the white working class there are things in common and there there's an argument for unity but you can't just gloss over the difference and i think that it's the it, it's it, bernie's great at the at the common at the common project but he he wavers at the difference um because i think he's very suspicious of identity politics and how it has fractured the left um but when I look at figures like AOC or Cori Bush, um, 
you know, or Rashida Talib or, you know, any, any member, other member of the, the squad, I see more skill in that ability to hold, to do those two things at once. Say, um, say, say more about that. What does, for example, AOC do that Bernie doesn't do quite as well? I think she's just more comfortable talking about race and identity and gender and, 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 and how that shapes how we meet the world. But but also saying and that me and we can build a multiracial, multi-ethnic, you know, uh, um, intergenerational movement that is more powerful together. But that doesn't try to collapse it all into a mushiness. Like she, I, I think she is really great at speaking to the particular the particularities of different immigrant experiences, and 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 um, and and the way and the way race sh shapes shapes the economy. Um, so I think young voters need that, want that. Um, and, and I think it's where, it's where, it's where Bernie stumbled, particularly with black voters. So, um, I think it's possible to do, I think this sort of binary of like, you're either doing identity politics or you're doing class politics is just not true. Um, it just takes a particular kind of skill to be able to do both. I want to turn now uh, to uh, the situation in Israel and Palestine. Uh, this week, you released two chapters from your book, Doppelganger, that relate to Israel and Palestine. And uh, Vermont is uh, sadly not a stranger to these issues because uh, just a few weeks ago, three young Palestinian college students who are students here in the U.S., were shot on the streets of Burlington as they were, uh, two were wearing a keffiyeh, they were speaking in Arabic, they were visiting their grandmother uh, for Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, the, the war has a long reach, although it has, I should point out, not been definitively established that uh, this was a hate crime or that there was a connection. We actually don't know why this man stepped off his porch and shot them. Um, the students themselves and their families feel pretty clearly that it was uh, because they were who they are. They are Palestinian Americans. So for people who have not been following this tortured history of Israel and Palestine closely, how would you explain what is going on right now between Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians? <laughs> Just a little question there, David. Well, I, um, <laughs> I intentionally am making that question big so that you can frame it the way um, you want to frame it. Um, so I mm. realize it's a big question. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, well, I want, I guess I'll start with what I think it's not. Um, I don't think that the um, frenzy of violence that Israel has unleashed onto Gaza, collective punishment of Palestinians, um, is a um, response to October 7th. Um, I think October 7th was the catalyst, um, but the project of Israel's response, uh, Israeli leaders have been very transparent about. They want to as much as possible, depopulate the Gaza Strip. Um, and this is, I, you know, I think that it's a, it, it's a kind of frenzy of revenge, but that makes it sound like there's no 
reason to it. Um, and I think, unfortunately, there is a reason there. I mean, in this, I mean, reason in the sense of a goal. Um, uh, and, I, you know, to understand the goal, you have to understand the logic of an ethnostate. Um, you know, Israel is um, determined to protect itself as a Jewish state, um, which requires a Jewish majority for it to be a Jewish state, but it has a problem, which is that it has occupied um, Palestinian territory since 1967 that 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 threaten that majority, which is why it has established a multi-tiered apartheid system, um, which looks different in the West Bank than it does in Gaza. In Gaza, you know, as Masha Gassin recently found herself found themselves in some hot water for I think quite a quite brilliant essay in 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 the New Yorker, where Masha said that the way to understand pre-October 7th Gaza was not as an open air prison, as we often say, I've used that term myself, but as a ghetto, specifically the kind of ghetto that the uh, that that Nazi Germany um, built and controlled um, for Jews, um, and and they they wrote um, that the that the ghetto was being liquidated. Now, liquidated not meaning everybody in the ghetto is being killed, but liquidated as in depopulated, um, as in making Gaza unlivable. Um, Gaza has always been the demographic bomb. Um, it's often described that way by Israeli leaders because there are 2.3 million um, uh, uh, Palestinians living there. So there's no way, they don't know what to do with it. So they have um, had it under siege for 17 years now. I've, I've visited in the early years of the siege um, in 2009, um, you know, and Israel controlled every part of it, right? I mean, this, and this is why Masha was saying that it's not a prison in the sense that a prison is controlled by the guards, um, but a ghetto is, con is, is, it's only the perimeter that is controlled. And then there is a, th there, there's a local population that controls the ghetto. That was true in Nazi Germany, and it is true in, 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 in Gaza. And the people who control it are Hamas. Um, and Hamas is a group that was cultivated by the Israeli government, by the Likud party in particular, on a divide and rule, um, uh, a colonial strategy. Um, they wanted to, to, to split Palestinian leadership between the West Bank and, and, and Gaza. <clears throat> they at a certain point thought it would be a better idea to deal with Islamists than deal with socialists. Or, you know, I mean, this is a long history, right? The U.S. has done the same. Um, but now, um, they are moving to another phase. Uh, and, you know, some Israeli politicians have called it a second Nakba. You know, that means it's ethnic cleansing. I think it meets meets the international definition of de genocide. Um, destroying a people in whole or in part is what international law says. Um, so if you have Israeli politicians openly saying that they want as many um, people in Gaza to, uh, to become refugees as possible, then that is a genocidal logic. Um, now, some people say that's anti-Semitic because how could Jew how how could a Jewish state commit genocide 
when Israel is itself conceived of as reparations for genocide. Well, victims can become perpetrators. And, you know, this is where it comes back to doppelgangers because, um, you know, in the book, I, I write about um, these rivaling interpretations of the, of the Holocaust and of the Nazi project more generally, where the, the interpretation that I grew up with, I went to Hebrew day school, I got a pretty conventional Jewish education at school, was that 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 this was almost like a, a rupture in the time-space continuum, that there was no way of understanding the Holocaust in the context of any other genocides, any other history, that it was a that it was a rupture out of history that grew out of the primordial nature of Jew hatred, which was so deep and so fixed that the only thing you could possibly do in the face of it was create a kind of a um, a fortress for Jews to go and live in, which was the argument, the, the post-Holocaust argument for Zionism. Zionism predates, as a political project, predates the Holocaust, um, but it was the Holocaust that became the final argument for why the state of Israel um, was created in, 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 in just, just three years after the end of the Second World War or four. Um, so, um, the trouble is that there is this other story about what the Nazi project was. And that's a, a story that many black intellectuals have been trying to tell since the 1930s. Um, uh, uh, the uh, Martinican um, poet and philosopher and politician, M.A. Cesar described fascism as, as, as colonialism turned inwards. W.E.B. Du Bois remarked that the Nazis that had learned from the, um, the systems of race making and genocide of colonialism and the transatlantic trade and enslaved Africans to learn how to build concentration camps and ghettos. And, um, you know, we now know that Hitler was inspired by American eugenics laws, and uh, he was obsessed with the frontier myth and saw Lebensraum, the eastward expansion, as the, the, the German equivalent of the American westward expansion. He wrote extensively about it. And so, you know, Raoul Peck uh, directed that, you know, remarkable HBO series, Exterminate All the Brutes, that put forward this other this alternative history of the Holocaust that said that this this was uh, a, a European project that began with the Inquisition, continued through the Crusades, the scramble for Africa, and looped back to for for its sort of final greatest crime being the Holocaust. Except the story didn't end there, and Raoul Peck ends there, but I don't end there. I yeah, the story that you know, this is what I write about in those chapters, is that because, because the official story that was told in Germany, that was told in the United States, that was told in, uh, you know, that is now told in Israel, the Holocaust did not reckon with what the Nazis had learned from settler colonialism, had learned from imperialism, had learned from Jim Crow and the reservation system. Um, it became thinkable that there could be reparations for the Holocaust by passing the mantle of colonial settler colonialism 
to Zionists to say, this is justice, you get to do it now. And that is not justice. That is a continuation of the same logic, the same story. And it is has now entered a its bloodiest phase in Gaza. Um, we haven't seen displacement on the scale of the original Nakba um, in 1948, when 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed. Um, but we're seeing a much higher tech um, version, and we may yet see dis um, you know, I mean, people have been displaced on that scale within Gaza, but not out of Gaza. So we're still in the story. This is the horror to me of this moment. I mean, there's so much horror in this moment, but one one of the horrors is I don't think the Second World War has ended. I think we're still in it. I think I think it was displaced in this twisted idea that you could make reparations for one genocide by licensing another. And that, that Nakba, that genocide never ended. How does this story end? Is it possible that in the cataclysm that is taking place right now, this, this catastrophe, um, that it could be an inflection point for a solution and and what what could that look like what should it look like i think it could be and i think that you know if you look at the um the extraordinary neo mccarthyite um censorships firings event cancellations like it's like whack-a-mole like they're just they can't they, like they like it's it is in a way hopeful because so many people are trying to tell a story of connection and and if you look at who is 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 is, is, is sort of most under attack it's overwhelmingly um you know black scholars scholars of de of of, of decolonial uh of settler colonialism um uh, you know, I live in Canada. Uh, the first Indigenous curator at a at a major museum, the Art Gallery of Ontario, Wanda Nanabush, was uh, pushed out of her job after she posted about the similarities between settler colonialism in Canada and Palestine. Um, Hammer and Hope, uh, the amazing um, uh, uh, digital magazine journal, um, one of the editors is Kanga Yamada Taylor came out of the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, they're under attack because they've been publishing uh, work by Palestinians. And some of that work is drawing connections between militarized policing in the United States um, and the infrastructure of occupation um, uh, and, and aerial bombardment in Gaza. Um, so it's the nodes of connection and solidarity that are clearly most threatening because not just because people are standing up and speaking out for Palestine, but because they're trying to tell that other story, right? They're trying to tell this other story about the connections between colonialism in the Americas and Australia um, and India and the horrors of the Holocaust and the horrors of the Nakba. Um, and the hope to me lies in, in that we're, 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 we're finally getting at the, at the logic underneath all of it, right? And this is why Peck 
chose the title Exterminate All the Brutes. It's the exterminatory mindset that is the flip side of the civiliz- the quote unquote civilizing urge, right? And as soon as you get resistance, that's when it ceases to be a project of civilization and becomes a project of annihilation. That's the that you know that that's the frenzy, that's the revenge that is happening right now in Gaza. And so if this other story can be born, and and, the, and people have been trying to tell this story for so long, this story of connection, then it asks things of us, right? If like if we really confront the connections between these 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 older massacres with these newer ones, then we also understand why our world is so unequal. We understand why our governments have allowed the global South to, you know, warm uh, uh, so cataclysmically. Right? Climate change hits first and worst in the global South, um, and that it has informed our, the the willingness of of governments in the rich world to just shrug and wait. Um, you know these inequalities, these injustices shape our world. They 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 scar our world. They maim it, and so, but and so, and they demand justice. They demand reparations. They demand a sort of you know Eduardo Galeano said the world is upside down. It demands that we turn the world right side up. It demands that we make real reparations, not the kind of reparations that 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 Germany made after the Second World War, paying reparations to the state of Israel so that they could have the infrastructure to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. No, like actually writing these wrongs at their source. And so, you know, that to me is why it was important to condemn the war crimes of October the 7th, because, you know, I don't believe in a logic that just stands with the oppressed no matter what, because that was the logic that produced the state of Israel in the first place. The Jews were the most oppressed people in the world in 1947 and 1948. And that was the argument for the Nakba. Um, I don't believe oppression is a, is, is, is a blank check. I've seen what that's done to my people. I believe we need to be guided by ethics and, and, and morality and, 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 the best expression we have therein, which is international humanitarian law, which says nobody targets civilians. Talk a little bit about anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on campus. You are on a campus, the University of British Columbia. Um, what is real and what is being weaponized? Um, I can't speak to, I mean, I'm, I think that, that, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Palestinian racism are all surging. You know, you started this part of the conversation by citing the most horrific example or one of, um, which is the, the her, 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 you know, the horrific shooting of three university students who were um, just being themselves. Uh, and we have also seen an eight-year-old Palestinian child killed. Um, and we have also seen explicitly anti-Semitic um, hate crimes uh, less on campus, um, you know, than it's than at synagogues, um, you know, other identifiably Jewish spaces. Um, I I think we are also in. I th- I think the actions of the Israeli government 
entangled Judaism with a um, with with war crimes in a way that I find abhorrent as a Jew and make me feel very unsafe as a Jew. When you bring a menorah into Gaza and hoist it as a victory symbol, when you go into a, a mosque and sing Shema Israel, you are entangling signifiers of Judaism with an imperial project. Now they're not the first ones to do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, remember the Crusades. Um, so. It's not, it's not the first time, you know, an imperial religious project has been entangled with the signifiers of a, of a religion, and it still doesn't make it okay to attack, you know, symbols of that religion in some form of twisted vengeance. That is still anti-Semitism. But in terms of what's happening on campuses, um, while acknowledging that I, I am absolutely sure that there are real instances of anti-Semitism, I think a lot of what is being called anti-Semitism is is young people who grew up inside the story that I talked about earlier, um, which is a story that equated the state of Israel with Jewish identity and with Jewish safety. And because they grew up with in that story, when they hear people chanting for Palestinian liberation, it feels like an attack on them as Jews, but it's not. <laughs> But it feels that way. So we need to hold uh, the tension that something can feel uh, um, uh, unsafe, something can feel uncomfortable, um, and that 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 it that that it is still legitimate speech, um, and that it isn't intended um, to make to to target any individual, um, and and so you know I think as educators we really have our work cut out for us because you know, a lot of what we do in universities is a process of unlearning um, mythologies that 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 our students grew up with and that we grew up with, right? And unlearning creates a feeling of vertigo, you know, a feeling of unsafety, of 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 instability, right? You 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 grew up being told your country was fantastic, and now you're suddenly hearing your country has committed war crimes. I mean, that happens. That that's 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 why there's been a ban on critical race theory, you know, because you've got parents, uh, you know, who don't want their kids to have the mythologies of nationhood questioned, right? So education is always hard, and we have we have to really be able to disentangle what is the work of unlearning and relearning, um, and the discomfort that can go along with that, um, while protecting our students from from harassment, intimidation, fear of retaliation. You know they. Uh, they, they have a right to be protected from that, but they don't have a right to, to be protected from discomfort. None of us do. None of us do. So finally, Naomi, how do we break out of these partitioned narratives that you so eloquently capture in Doppelganger and haul ourselves out of this mirror world? Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is really like, I, you know, I believe... Israel Palestine is is the open wound of the world. Um, I'm not the first person to say so, and 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 I say that because because the whole history of the modern world is is in is is in this wound, um, and and it's complicated, right? It is not a it is not a simple. I mean, you know, I know we're supposed to say it's not that complicated. Some things aren't complicated, but some things are. It's complicated for uh, you know a state to be to be formulated as reparations for for holocaust it's complicated to, to for a state to be born out of mass trauma 
Um, and, and, and it means that the sort of very simple stories of colonizer, colonized, oppressor, oppressed, while they may fit in the modern day, it like, if, if you want to be able to break out of those partition narratives, you have to be able to, to see each other, like to actually just, you don't have to agree, but you actually have to believe that each other are real, like that your stories exist, right? You can't, if all you do is just retell and re-traumatize and say, you know, this is like, like, like cling to your parallel stories and, and don't even acknowledge that the other stories exist, we'll never, ever, ever get out, you know? And so I think this is a big, it's a big challenge for the left because it requires that we, um, we see these, these complexities of, how how victims become perpetrators um you know how how something can can have been a bad idea but the seemingly the only option left like like it's 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 and i think it's good to be challenged you know i think it i think it is good but it's very hard um so but i think things were getting a little too compartmentalized so maybe <laughs> Maybe, maybe we will, maybe we'll get to a wiser place out of this, um, out of this extreme trauma. Well, Naomi Klein, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for the opportunity, David. It's great to talk with you as always.